Luke chapter 8. The sound of that was basically just the song, What Child Is This? In eight weeks, Thanksgiving over, the world will once again in earnest consider that question, What Child Is This? And we're going to join them in that endeavor. And we're going to look to answer that very question through the eyes of Isaiah 9-6 in a four-part Christmas series. And this morning, with the disciples, we're going to consider a different question. What then is this man? Mm -hmm. I dare say the number one lesson the disciples needed to learn was how to answer that very question. You know the song, it didn't matter that they know about history, biology, a science book, or the French they took. It did matter that beyond a shadow of a doubt, they understand the person and work of Jesus Christ. They need to understand his identity, that he was fully God, that he was fully man, he was the God-man. They need to understand his authority as such. And we know at this point in in Luke's gospel, they've been with him at least 24-7-365 for one cycle. I mean, think about what they've watched him do. Cast out demons, cleanse lepers, heal the lame, heal diseases of all kinds, raise the dead, preach the gospel far and wide, teach with great authority to stump those in the temple. And so, despite all that, they still had many questions that lingered. I mean, think about it. If you'll turn, put your finger there, Luke 8, and turn to Matthew 13. And they must have had a rip-roaring case of vertigo. Their minds were dizzy trying to grasp who this man actually was. I mean, put yourself in their shoes for a minute. We so often get down on the disciples and think, man, they're so stupid. If we were there, it'd probably be even worse, wouldn't we? And look at Matthew 13, 55 and following. It says, is not this the carpenter's son? Isn't this Joseph's son? How's he doing all this stuff? In his mother Mary, aren't his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And hey, over there in the corner, isn't that his sisters? Where then did this man get all these things? He must have blown their mind. And so Jesus is going to teach them, basically the rest of Luke 8, Jesus is going to teach them how to answer this question. His identity and his authority as such over disaster, demons, disease, and death. And so it's a four-part lesson, as I've entitled here, put here, in the lab of life. And so today, Jesus calms a storm. He takes the disciples to the lab of life and calms a storm to teach them about his identity and his authority. So stand with me to honor the reading of God's Word, Luke chapter 8. Verses 22 to 25, Luke writes, One day he, Jesus, got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger, and they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. We're about to die, Jesus. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water? And they obeyed him. 
the Word of God to the people of God, preaching the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you for that precious child, Father, that was born in the stable, that then became a man, that stumped the minds of the disciples, Father, with his great authority. In word and in deed, Father, help us to come today and just to marvel again at, Father, this that is too uh, great for us to even be able to remotely consider that Jesus is fully God and fully man. But Father, help us to understand that. Help us to understand the authority that he then possesses over our lives as such. I pray that you will help me to decrease. And Father, you'll increase through me. Preach to your people what you would have them to hear today. Give us ears to hear and hearts to know truths that you would have us to take today and apply to our life. And Father, we can live a life that is more pleasing to you. We ask all this now in the precious name of Jesus, and we know when you answer it, we will turn that back to glory to you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. There's three parts. First, the summons. The summons, look at verse 22. One day he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across the other side of the lake. So they set out. Jesus commanded, summoned the disciples to cross the lake. It had been a long day of ministry. He had been teaching the multitudes and the disciples. <coughs> Have you ever noticed how mental fatigue or exhaustion can be worse than physical? Yes. I've had people say, well, Dr. B, you don't really have a hard job, you know, because you don't do any physical labor. And I'm thinking, you come deal with 30 people and each got nine problems and 22 medicines and you'll see how exhausted you are at the end of the day. Sometimes mental fatigue, exhaustion can be just as bad as physical. So Luke tells us in four simple words, look at what it says. So they set out. So first off, I want you to imagine this. Mark tells us the timing of it, that on that day when evening had come. So imagine the scene. I imagine that it was something greater in worth than that of a Thomas Kincaid painting. Think of it. The sun is setting. You know, glimmering across the water. The disciples are abuzz with activity, getting the boat ready to sail. They're pulling up the sails. They're pulling up anchors. They're talking about the things that happened that day. They're talking about Jesus. They're talking about the crowds. And Jesus is exhausted and literally crawls to the stern of the boat, lays his head down, and if he you know, was like me and like you, in 2.2 seconds, he was out, which annoys my wife, right? I mean, my head hits the pillow, and it's out. I imagine Jesus was so exhausted, he crawled back there, he put his head down on the pillow, which it was custom to have a pillow there, and he's out. Now, think about this for a second. First, this is no harebrained last-second idea of Jesus. This is not, hey, do y'all want to take a sunset cruise on the Messiah cruise line? <laughs> he has a divine appointment on the other side of a lake with a man who has potentially 6,000 demons. What's your name? Legion. But he also has a divine appointment inside the boat to teach the disciples a lesson in the lab of life. So Deuteronomy 6, 4-11, what does it say? Teach your kids when you sit, walk, lie down, and rise. And you're to teach them to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, strength. That means with the totality of themselves. 
all of themselves. And you're to teach them when? The totality of life. Every second. So do we see the mundane in life as divine opportunities? Divine appointments? When you're in the kitchen with your kids and cooking, is it just to prepare a meal? Or is it potentially that you could use it to have a spiritual discussion? When I'm in the woods, is it just an opportunity for me to be there and watch a couple of deer feed in front of me? Or is it an opportunity for me to commune with the very God who created this universe and created me? Or when I go to the gym or when we're on vacation or just a quick trip to Walmart or when we're at the restaurant, Jesus used every second to teach His spiritual babies we should do the same. Second, what do you make of Jesus' command? Look here. Most of us, this is how we read it. Let us go. And we stop. He said to them, let us go. Okay, they're going to get in the boat. But do you see? What is it that Jesus said? Let us go across to the other side of the lake. And so as Dr. Constable said, Jesus' command constituted a guarantee they would arrive safely. So it's not just a command, it is a promise. It's not ambiguity, it is certainty. Now what we don't think of is what were most of these guys? Fishermen. They had a lot of experience as fishermen. Years had taught them how ambiguous the Sea of Galilee could be. How dangerous a proposition it was to go across to the other side of the lake. I mean, think about it. They couldn't pull up weather.com on their cell phone. They didn't have radars. They didn't have phone alerts, anything like that. And even if they did, the Sea of Galilee was basically a storm looking for a place to happen. And it could go from calm to terrible in 19.3 minutes. I wonder if that entered their mind, maybe. It's sunset. It's evening. Jesus says we're going across. But hey, man, I remember the last time we were out here. And it was a pretty terrible storm. One thing we know for certain is Jesus looked back at... Uh, uh, the rest or the beginning other part of chapter 8 Jesus had laid down the gauntlet what did he say verse 15 as for that in the good soul they are those who what hearing the word hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience he had laid down the gauntlet you need to listen to me you need to be the good soul now I'm going to put you in the lab of life and we're going to see if you actually are the good soul So would they pass the test? Well, we would say they failed it, right? And we'll see that in a minute. But you know what we can agree on is this. At least they got in a boat. They didn't make safety an idol. They didn't make comfort an idol and sit on the seashore admiring the sunset. I mean, four words that we lose sight of. Look there, it says, So they set out. Remember what I said, Dr. Rogers said, the greatest cult in the church is what? Cult of the comfortable. Year in, year out, millions of Christians sit on the shoreline and admire the sunset from the sidelines. So the greater question isn't 
would they be the good soul? The greater question is, am I the good soul? Are you the good soul? The good soul. Think about Scripture in the Old Testament. In Numbers 14, what did Israel do? They're griping, complaining. They say, we want new leaders. They're stomping their feet. God says, you didn't listen to my word. Guess what? All of you unbelieving generation, you get to die out here in the wilderness. Moses, he didn't listen to the Lord. He struck the rock twice. What does God say? Because you didn't listen to my word, you don't get to take the people into the land. Joshua's going to get to do that. What about they, uh, uh, Sam or Saul? We looked at that this morning. He didn't listen to the Lord. God said, I'm taking the kingship away from you. Think about David. Just something as simple as you're supposed to carry the Ark of the Covenant on the shoulders. He says, let's put it on a cart. A man reaches out to keep it from falling off the cart and he loses his life. How many people in churches are forfeiting the blessings of the Lord because they don't listen? Because it's in one ear, out the other. They have itching ears. They have wandering ears. They have all kind of hearing other than good hearing. As we talked about this morning, know that what you sow, you will reap. If Noah sows obedience in his life, you know what he's going to reap? Obedience. If he sows disobedience to the Lord in his life, you know what he's going to reap? Disobedience. Alright, so that's the uh, the summons. Let's look now at the storm. Look at verse 23 starting there. We're going to look at three things under this. Jesus' humanity, his deity, and his laboratory. So Jesus' humanity. Note first the storm. Look there in verse 23. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. So the Sea of Galilee is not really a sea, it's a lake. Like I said, it's a storm waiting for a place to happen. It sits several hundred feet down below sea level. It's got these huge uh, high rolling hills and there's these gorges that are cut through the rock. So it's like a wind machine, a wind tunnel. And you've got warm water up uh, uh, here or cool water up here and then warm water down here and it comes together. And it's just like a bad huge storm waiting for a place to happen. So these disciples were used to storms, but this is no storm. The Greek word here for windstorm literally means a hurricane. This is what one person said in regards to describing the Greek word. It's never a single gust, nor a steadily blowing wind, however violent, but a storm breaking forth from black thunderclouds and furious gusts with floods of rain and throwing everything topsy-turvy. Not to mention Matthew says that it was a great tempest. And that word in the Greek is seismos. What did you think of when you hear that? Seismic. Earthquake. It's a hurricane, literally an earthquake on the water. There was a group of visitors that came to visit the Sea of Galilee and they're looking out at the glassy surface and they start saying, now we just don't really believe that there can be a storm come up like is said in the Gospels. Less than 20 minutes later, they're 200 yards from the shore taking shelter as the severity of the wind and the rain is beating against them. One traveler described it, he said that the face of the lake was like a huge boiling cauldron. One guide was asked if he'd ever been in a storm on the Sea of Galilee and he said, yeah, and I hope it never happens to me again. I mean, it would have been terrifying. I mean, it would have tested anybody's faith. 
Look second at the ships. Mark tells us that there's more than one ship, that there's multiple of them, and look at what it says. They were filling with water. That's imperfect tense. It means and they kept filling and they kept filling and they kept filling and they kept filling with water till it's up to the brim. And it says, and they were in jeopardy, they were in jeopardy, they were in danger, they were in peril. It says the word perish there, which means to utterly destroy to the point that you're going to die. The illustration is given of a boat or a ship, the Edmund Fitzgerald. It was 729 feet long, had been on the Great Lakes 17 years, and in November 10th of 1975 was in the midst of the worst storm that ever hit Lake Superior in 30 years. Wind gusts of 96 miles an hour, waves 30 feet high. It says it snapped the boat in half. And it literally disappeared, sank in 10 seconds. One person said one instant she was plowing through waves as high as a three-story building, the next she was gone. Now imagine that same thing in a boat that's a tenth the size. And made out of wood, not steel. So look next at the Savior. Look at verse 23. What's Jesus doing? Sleep. He's snoring. He's sawing logs. In Mark's account, the tense he uses of the verb there means this. And Jesus was asleep, and he kept sleeping, and he kept sleeping, and he kept sleeping. He's calm as a cucumber. He's back there going, Hakuna Matata. I mean, how in the world... My wife literally says I could sleep through a hurricane, and I agree with her that I could. But literally, how in the world could you literally sleep through a hurricane, an earthquake on the water? Turn to Psalm 89. I mean, because think about Jesus. Number one, why do you think he could sleep through a hurricane? Probably because he's totally exhausted. You ever been so exhausted you've slept through about anything? So his body's exhausted, but you know what his heart's doing? His heart's trusting the Lord. Look at Psalm 89, 8 and 9. O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are? O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. He knew that God would wake him up just the right moment and calm the storm. God would not allow them. He had already said, we're going across to the other side of the lake and nothing was going to stop that. Amen? Amen. And so I think here what we really see, the point I want to point out, is Jesus is human. His humanity. How is he, A, he's sleeping. How is he sleeping through a hurricane? Because he's a man. And so think about Jesus' humanity. He had a human body. He was born like all babies are. He grew from childhood to adulthood. He got tired as here. He was weak. He was hungry. He ate. He had a human mind. He increased in wisdom. He said with regards to the second coming, I don't even know when it is I'm coming. Only the Father knows. He had a human soul and emotions. If you remember, the shortest verse in Scripture is what? Jesus wept. In Hebrews 5, 7, he prays with a heart full of emotion. Those that were the closest to Jesus saw him as what? Just another man. So Dr. Grudem says this, he says, He was so fully human that even those who lived and worked with him for 30 years, even those brothers who grew up in his own household did not realize he was anything more than another very good human being. They apparently had no idea he was God come in the flesh. Why is it important that Jesus' full humanity is 
that we assert that. Number one, representative obedience. Where Adam messed up, Jesus succeeded. Second is substitute sacrifice. Goats and cows can't take away our sin. Right? And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. It would have to be a man that paid the penalty for our sins. Third, the one mediator. There's one mediator between God and man. The God-man. And then to fulfill God's original purpose. And then to be our example and pattern in life. 1 John 2.6 That we ought to walk as He walked. And then our pattern for our redeemed bodies and then to sympathize as high priests. Those are many of the reasons why Jesus' full humanity is necessary. Alright, so look now with me at Jesus' deity. Verse 24, it says, And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. So they're in the midst of a hurricane, a waterquake, and Jesus is asleep at the wheel. And what do they do? They go on their waking. Notice there, Master, Master. Why would they say that? Master, Master. You ever had your kids come to you and say, Daddy, Daddy, Mama, Mama. You know what it means? Hey, this is really important. Wake up. I mean, you ever had your kids come, Daddy, Daddy, the high pitch, I'm sure that's how the disciples were. They were like teenage boys, right? They done hit the panic button. And I think it's a very good illustration to us, what do we do in the midst of a hurricane? What do we do in the midst of a storm in our life? Do we jump up and Daddy, Daddy, and hit the panic button? Or do we hit our knees? I always use this line my kids know from the movie Rango. One of my favorite scenes from that is basically where the lizard's out there in the desert and the bird says, he's going to die out here. I imagine that's how the disciples felt. We're going to die. Jesus, wake up. We're about to die. Now how do you think Jesus woke up? You think he jumped up and said, oh yeah, let me get right over here, right at y'all's beck and call and do exactly what you want. I think he kind of took his sweet, precious time. I think he kind of woke up, stretched a little bit, yawned a little bit, let me get that slobber off of my mouth where I was drooling so from sleeping and rub a little sleep out of my eye. And what's, what's going on? What's wrong? Hurry up! Hurry up! We're about to die! Alright, alright, I'm, I'm coming. And he slowly gets up and he walks over there and I could be wrong. But you know, one thing, again, we say with the disciples, man, they're so dumb sometimes, but you know what? They knew where their help came from. Mm -hmm. They knew where to go for help. Do we? You're in the midst of a hurricane in your life. You're in the midst of a great trial, storm. You know, the great theologian Will Rogers, as I've said, has said this, the problem with our prayers is we use them as a means of last resort. The last person we go to is Jesus. Then we got to bring it to Him like the toy that you've tried to put together, fix, and go, uh, Dad, I really messed this one up. Can you really fix it now? I mean, remember when I said Jesus didn't give them a command, He gave them a promise they were going across. One person said this, the storm did not disturb the Master, but the unbelief of His disciples did. Did you hear that? The storm didn't disturb him, but the unbelief of his disciples did. And so he rebukes the wind, he rebukes the raging waves, and look at the result. They ceased, there was a calm. 
The verbs in the Greek are the aorist tense, which means a completed action. It was like immediate. It didn't just like the sea went kind of slowly back to itself. It was like... You ever seen a conductor? When David's up here and he says, cut off the words, he means cut off the words. He don't mean y'all keep trailing along. It's like that. Jesus, the conductor, gets up there, the conductor over creation, and he says... And it was silent. It was as calm. So what does this teach us from, first of all, experience? Only God. We have seen recently hurricanes devastate our country, countries around us. What can we do if you were in the midst of a hurricane on St. Thomas Island? Run for your life. That's what you can do. Or try and find a shelter underground or hit your knees and pray. But you're not going to go out there like a conductor and say, hey, be calm and it happen unless God grants your prayer right then. Amen? Only God can control a hurricane, a water quake. What does this teach us from Scripture? Only God. Remember, I read Psalm 89 and it says, Who calms the raging of the sea? and makes it immediately calm. God. So things in the Old Testament that were ascribed to only God are now ascribed to Jesus. Therefore, Jesus is who? God. So He's fully human. We already said that. And He's fully God. One person said this, it's a harmony too magnificent to be the product of human imagination. So how do we know Jesus was God? Because people say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, they haven't read, obviously, have they? Scripture says clearly, He said, I am. That is a clear reference to Exodus 3. I am God. He said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. John in 1.1 says, He is the Word. That goes to the Jews back to Genesis 1.1 of a God that speaks. And here, how does He get the uh, sea to calm? He speaks it. Jesus Himself called Himself the Son of Man 84 times. That refers back to Daniel 7 in which the Son of Man is clearly known as God. Remember what He told the high priest. He said, oh, you're going to get your sign that you want when you see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. And what do they do? They tear their clothes. Why did they tear their clothes? Because they knew in that moment exactly what He said. He commits blasphemy. Well, what blasphemy did He commit? He's basically saying, I'm God. And then obviously we see here clear evidence that He is God. Well, why was His full deity necessary? Three things quickly. One, bear. Only infinite God could bear the full penalty of sins. There's no way you and I could actually bear the penalty of our sin. And then say, Jonah 2.9 says salvation is of the Lord. That's the whole message of Scripture. That's the message from Genesis 3.15 to Revelation 22.20. Jesus is coming back. Only God could save and then mediate. 1 Timothy 2.5 We said only someone truly man and truly God could actually be the one mediator between man and God. So you ask, Dr. B, why are you spending so much time on this? Why is this so important? It's because of this. Every heresy that has ever been, is today, and ever will be does one of two things. It either denies Jesus' full humanity or it denies Jesus' full deity. I'll give you a couple quickly. Adoptionism. 
This is in the past. Jesus was just a man tested by God. He passed the test and so God adopted him as a son. He wasn't really fully God. Docetism means to seem or to appear. Matter's evil so God can't be in a physical body. Jesus just appeared to be human. Let me give you a couple today. Jehovah Witness. They denied the deity of Christ. Ask them. And that's what I asked the guy that came to my doorstep. Is Jesus God? Well, now, now, hang on. Well, what did he say? But they denied the deity of Christ. The shack. Subordinationism. That Jesus is subordinate. He's underneath God the Father. No, he's equal to God the Father. You say, well, so what? So what is this? 1 John 4.1 tells you to test every spirit. And as I've said, if it is not, say Jesus is fully God, fully human, vomit it out and run. I don't care if it's a book, it's a movie, it's a sect, it's a denomination, it's a religion. If they some way deny fully Jesus is 100% God and 100% man, do not believe that person. That's why we're spending so much time on it. Alright, thirdly, Jesus' laboratory. So look at what he says. Where's your faith? Matthew says you have little faith. That's oligopistos. Pistos meaning faith. Oligo, a little bit. We use that word when people are about to, their body's about to shut down, they go into oligourea. It means they're making a little bit of urine. He says, where's your little bitty faith? This is how much you've got. Where is it? Let me ask you, does Jesus' rebuke seem harsh? I mean, think about it. They are in a hurricane. They are in a water quake. I mean, they're not on the Titanic. They're not even in the SSS Minnow. They're in a canoe for all intents and purposes. And maybe, you know, you would say, well, yeah, I think maybe it is a little harsh. But think about it. They've been with Jesus day in, day out, night in, night out, 24-7, 365. They had seen this man do all kinds of miracles and raise the dead. And now calm a storm. He said, we're going to the other side of the lake. This ain't a if. This is we are. One person said they abandoned all spiritual logic. And it was a big lesson for them. What we lose sight of, because Luke is not chronological, he's topical, is that all of this happened after Jesus had taken them to school. He had shared with them all of these parables of the kingdom in Matthew 13. They probably felt, as one person said, like post-grad students in the school of faith. They understood more than the scribes had ever understood, the rabbis, the Old Testament prophets. But let me tell you, you know how I earned a degree in chemistry? In a lab. You know how I earned a medical degree? In a lab. You know how God is going to have us earn a Christian degree? How He's going to hand out diplomas? It's not going to be... God does not hand out diplomas from the comfort and the safety of your prayer closet. And of you sitting in your study with your coffee mug and your air-conditioned house sitting in your nice padded seat. Someone has said faith must be tested before it can be trusted. Dr. Wiersbe says this, Satan don't care how much Bible truth we learn so long as we don't live it. Truth that is only in the heads, purely academic, and never will get into the heart until it is practiced 
By the will, Satan knows that academic truth is not dangerous, but active truth is. So my life, you know how God has taught me Scripture? In the lab of life. God is not going to teach you to live by faith in a sterile environment. You know how God has taught me 2 Timothy 1.7 as I share with the men today? You've not been given a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power. He put me in the middle of a village in the middle of Africa in which I thought I was going to potentially die. You know how God has taught me that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me? He gave me a ruptured disc in my back. He gave me a wife who is, God does not give us evil, obviously you understand, but He's allowed these things. He's allowed me to have a wife that has rheumatoid arthritis. You know how He's taught me 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, love doesn't go around and keep a little notebook in which I've got in the notebook, well now on this day, at this time, Dickie Cook did this. And now, hey Dickie, look, I'm ahead by three counts on showing love. You've got a little bit to do there, sister. He taught me 1 Corinthians 13 in marriage. You know how He taught me to love my wife like Christ loved the church? He gave me days in which I don't really feel like loving her. And there's days in which she's really not lovable. You know how He taught me Romans 8.1? There's no condemnation in those now that are in Christ Jesus. There's days I wake up. Do you wake up and say, I just don't really feel saved today? You know how he taught me James 1.27? Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is to visit widows and orphans in their affliction. He sent me to Ecuador. And watch this woman back here sit and feed a child that can't feed itself. You want to show me how religious you are? When's the last time you did anything like that? You know how he taught me 1 Thessalonians 4.13? We don't grieve as those who have no hope. He had me preach a funeral. Or 2 Corinthians 1, 3, 4, He's the God of comfort, allowed discomfort in my life. John 13, 35, By this the world will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You know how He does that? He puts an unlovable saint in the pew beside you. Or behind you or in front of you. Or does God really say you should tithe? 2 Corinthians 9, 7, God loves a cheerful giver. You know how he taught me Romans 1.16? Don't be ashamed of the gospel. People ridiculed me. You know one of the ones that has hit home the biggest? Proverbs 22.6. Train up a child in the way they should go, and when they are old, they will not depart from it. Two child children that are uh, errant. Do you see what I'm saying? And you know what? If I had to learn all those lessons over again, I would be thankful to learn them again because at the end of the day, Jesus is going to give me the crown of life. And I'm going to turn around and I'm going to lay that crown to His beautiful nail-scarred feet. Amen? Amen? But I want you to understand, brothers and sisters, that God is not going to teach you to live by faith in a sterile environment. He's going to do it just like He did with these disciples by having them get in the boat and it's going to be sometimes messy. And it's going to definitely be uncomfortable and it's definitely going to potentially be painful. One person wrote this poem, said, I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace 
Might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. T'was he who taught me thus to pray, and he I trusted has answered prayer, but it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. Without the difficulties, I wouldn't be the person that I am in Christ today. All right, look finally at the stumping. Look at verse 25. He said to them, Where's your faith? And they were afraid and they marveled. We've seen fear in response to Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. We've seen wonder. This is the first time that we see the two side by side. They were afraid and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this? Who is Jesus, who are you? That he commands even winds and water and they obey him. This is really what the whole rest of this is going to be about and it's going to be summed by the great profession, confession of faith in verse 20 of chapter 9. Jesus says, Who do men say that I am? Then he turns to Peter and says, Really the big question is, Who do you say I am? It don't matter what the world says about Jesus. It matters what Marty Bauer says about Jesus. Peter answered per Matthew's wording, The Christ of God the Christ, the Son of the living God. He might have been a big dummy at times, but he had that answer right to that question, didn't he? And here's the thing. We say, man, they're just so dumb sometimes. But I want to ask you, have you grown in your knowledge of Jesus Christ from the day that you were saved? So if you've grown in your knowledge of that, why do we then get so down on them? They're in a learning process. They're learning. In fact, what should be our prayer is the same prayer that Peter gave in 2 Peter 3.18 that we would grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. I don't care if you're a hundred years old and been a Christian for a hundred years. Your desire ought to be every day, every year that you're growing deeper and deeper in the knowledge of who Jesus is because you can't exhaust it. You can try and swim to the bottom of the ocean and you ain't going to get there. You can try to swim to the bottom of what it means for Jesus to be fully God, fully man, and you ain't going to get there. I mean, have y'all ever been around creation and saw a man walk up to it and say, now creation, I want you to jump, and this is how high in creation jumps, that height. So can you imagine them? They're blown away. And think about it. Has not Jesus stumped even the greatest minds that we know of? Stephen Hawkins, A Brief History of Time, he said, We now know that our galaxy is only one of some hundred thousand million that can be seen using modern telescopes, each galaxy itself containing some hundred thousand million stars. So the average distance between these hundred thousand million galaxies is three million light years. Edwin Hubble, who... uh, was famous for the Doppler effect and red spectrum galaxies are moving away from us and you know what almost all colored galaxies are? Red. So basically that's how they know the universe is expanding at 200 million miles an hour. Christ created all of that. Now if that don't blow your mind then you ain't got a mind. Every atom He created. And if you could go to the far edge of the universe And you could see a star that was being born. And you could go out there and you could see a planet that is not then hurling 
at 99 billion times light speed towards earth to collide with it and destroy us, what is sustaining that planet, what is sustaining Mars at this very instant from crashing into the earth and killing all of us is what? Jesus. He's sustaining it right now. You know why you're breathing? You know why you're breathing, man? It's not your diaphragm, son. It is Jesus Christ that's sustaining your every breath. And that don't blow your mind. And then people have this question, well, what is the world coming to? You know how Dr. Rogers answered it? It's coming to Jesus. One astronomer said it's like our galaxies are just like rafts on a cosmic river just streaming to the unknown. No, sir. They're streaming to Jesus. That's what they're streaming to. He's the Creator. He's the Sustainer. He is the goal of everything in this universe. If that don't blow your mind again, you ain't got a mind. I would pray that the rest of our born days that we would be stumped by this question. Who then is this man? And I would pray that God would put a continual fire in your mind and heart and a continual fire in my, your, my mind and heart that we every day would want to know more and more and more of the mystery that is the God-man Jesus Christ. When we start doing that, a lot of our other problems will pale in comparison. Amen. We come back to this original question as we close up. What child is this? Who then is this man? You see, this account to me serves the same threefold function for us as it did for the disciples. Three things to take away if you don't take nothing else away is this. One, identity. Who really is Jesus? I can't fully answer it, but if anyone ever asks you, who is Jesus? You can say this and you can be right. He's fully God and He's fully man. And as such, He's the only person that can provide salvation for man. What's Acts 4.12 say? There's salvation given by no other name under heaven. No other name under heaven by which men must be saved other than Jesus Christ, Him and Him alone. Second is authority. And these four parts... He's got authority over demons, disease, death, and here disaster. And here's the thing. You know what he was going to turn around and do with that authority? Give it to the disciples. You know what he's turned around and done today? He's given that authority to us. Isn't that the promise in Matthew 28? And then finally, the reality. I don't care how terrible your life gets, how bad the storm gets, Jesus is not asleep at the wheel. He is aware and He is able. We were in Africa one time and I took a picture of this, this kid in Africa, the middle of Africa, ain't got nothing to his name. I know Amy loves that English, but that is right. That kid ain't got nothing. He barely got a shirt on his back. The thing is stained 99 ways to Sunday, two or three tears here, there, and everywhere. But it, in little writing that you still could see, it said this, he is able. I said, Amen, Hallelujah. If we could all get that through our thick skull, we would be doing well. He is aware and He is able. Ephesians 3.20 Now to Him who is able 
to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Who is this Jesus? He's fully God, fully man. He's got authority over everything. He sustains everything in this universe. And the reality is, He's aware of what's going on in your life, and He is able. That is our Jesus. What a man to be praised. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we just thank You so much for Jesus. Father, we don't come here to puff ourselves up or say anything about ourselves. We just come to fall at Your feet and worship Jesus. Oh, what a blessed, precious Savior we have. We thank You for Him. Father, I pray that You will just constantly burn within our hearts and our mind a desire to know who He is fuller. Father, to understand the authority He has over our life fuller. To come to the reality that, Father, no matter what each and every person that is going through in here today, each and every one of us has something different we're going through. It don't matter the what, Father, it's the who. And we know that Jesus is able to meet every need in our life. And we thank you for that. I pray as we come to this time of invitation that you would bless it. If there's any person here today that needs to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, Father, don't let them leave today without coming to that saving knowledge. We ask you to bless this invitation now in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. This week, Jimmy posted a thought-provoking question in regards to Hugh Hefner. Many of you may know that he passed away this week. Maybe you didn't. It quickly became a theological debate amongst several of us. You know, he asked, oh, Hugh got any regrets now? Well, if he wasn't saved, he does. Amen? Well, that was the whole debate. Really, you know, it was brought to this. Well, was even old Hugh saved? Not much fruit to prove so, Amen? and hope and pray that he came to know him before he took his last breath. But you know, the real question really ain't that. The real question is, am I saved? Are you saved? Am I saved? You see, I've stopped even asking people, do you know Jesus? I never ask people, do you go to church? I ain't never asked anybody if they've been baptized. I've started to ask them this, have you been born again? Because Jesus made it clear, if you have not been born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And you know what millions upon millions of folks, maybe like even old Hugh have done when it comes to salvation? This. They got a round to it in their back pocket. You know, one day I'm going to get a round to it. You ever heard somebody, they don't really say that necessarily, but one day I'm going to get saved. Maybe there's something in here I said today that has struck some of you. God's been calling you to do something, and you know what you've been saying? I'm going to get around to it. One day I'm saved, and I'm, I've been born again, but one day I'm really going to start living for Christ. No, that's not next week or next month is today. If you do not know Jesus, if you have never put your faith and your trust in Him, come and receive Him today. Ask Him to forgive you of your sins and He will do that. Stop waiting to get around to it and do it today. Or maybe it's that God's calling you to join here at Crossway and you say, well, we're going to get around to it. Maybe you've never been baptized and you say, well, one day I'm going to get around to it. Whatever it may be, as we sing today, listen to the Lord speak to you this morning. Let's stand as we sing. Let's stand page 318.
failed in your plan of your storm-tossed life. Place your hand in the nail-scarred hand. Are you weary and worn from its toil and strife? Place your hand in the nail-scarred hand. Place your hand in the nail-scarred hand. Place your hand in the nail-scarred hand. He will keep till the end. He's your dearest friend. Place your hand in the nail-scarred hand.